You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. In July of 1731, as the controversy over the growing cult at St. Medard grew, a woman named Amy Pivert came to Francois de Paris' tomb seeking a cure for some neurological disorder. This illness may have been epilepsy, for upon touching the tomb, she went into spasmic contortions, causing some to think her possessed. Almost every day for a month, she experienced these convulsions at St. Medard, until finally she went away claiming she'd been cured. Two weeks later, some other women appeared to convulse at the tomb and then claimed to have been healed, one of them asserting that she had regained the powers of speech and hearing after the experience. At the end of August, an anti-constitutionnaire abbot by the name of Becherand, whose leg had been withered since he was a boy, went to the cemetery to pray for a cure in hopes of further bolstering the Jansenist cause. This abbot also began screaming and experiencing dramatic contortions and convulsions every day when he visited, with some reports claiming that his writhing body lifted into the air in a way they could not explain. He would shout that different parts of his body were in pain, and the cult's adherents would rub dirt from de Paris' grave onto those places, which somehow relieved his suffering. This went on for weeks, with the police that were present to keep the peace describing his displays as scandalous and terrifying in their reports. Jansenist doctors, who had been present for some time to record any miracles at the cemetery, examined him regularly and claimed his atrophied leg was much improved, while critics of the cult pointed out that he still couldn't walk on it, suggesting he was faking the entire thing. Soon, though, these convulsions began to spread, as though contagious, whether through the power of suggestion or for reasons we have previously seen suggested to explain the dancing plague, like the consumption of tainted bread, or as some suggested at the time because of quote-unquote hysteria, or even quote erotic vapors, end quote. As the ecclesiastical and political controversy continued to swirl around the cult, the occurrences at Francois de Paris' tomb began to change, and certainly in a metaphorical sense, 
these convulsions truly were contagious, for from them originated great tremors that would shake up not only the cult members and their Jansenist supporters, but the Gallican Church, the Sovereign Court, and the entire Ancien Regime of pre-revolutionary France. This is historical blindness. I am Nathaniel Lloyd, and as I kneel here at this thaumaturge's tomb, I'm beginning to feel my limbs twitching. Have I been kneeling for too long, or is it a strange new kind of miracle? This is part two of the Jansenist miracles of Enlightenment France, the Convulsionaires. Before we start the show, I want to thank my new patrons, who will be charged by Patreon initially for their chosen pledge amount, but now have access to the ad-free patron feed with teasers and bonus minisodes. Thanks so much, Shelby and Sin, for your support. I've paused monthly billing during the pandemic, so after the initial charge, you won't be paying for your Patreon content until I decide to resume. So right now is a great time to pledge and get access to ad-free episodes and exclusive stories like my recent Patreon release about the fraudulent Messiah Sabbatai Zevi and his false prophet, the mystic Nathan of Gaza. Those who want to support the show can also make a one-time donation at historicalblindness.com under the Donate tab. Or help rehabilitate my Apple Podcast rating, which has suffered because of some politically motivated one-star reviews, by giving me a favorable rating and review there. Any support is appreciated. Thanks for listening. On to the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. In part two of this series on miracles in the High Enlightenment, we're getting into the truly odd part of this story, as the observances at the tomb of Francois de Paris take on a peculiar new aspect. But before we look at the contagion of convulsionism at St. Medard, let us look at the social and political convulsions already radiating out from the cemetery. As discussed in the last episode, the doctrinal controversy associated with the cult at St. Medard, that of Jansenist resistance to the papal bull Unigenitus, had already caused a further schism, this one not in the church, but in the government, between the parliament or sovereign court of Paris and the royal authority of King Louis XV. Within the parliament were certain factions who were strongly allied with or sympathetic toward the Jansenists. And these magistrates and barristers pushed against royal authority in such matters as the formulary controversy when Jansenists were compelled to sign a formula of submission, as well as in the king's subsequent efforts to make the unigenitus bull a state law rather than just a church doctrine. But among the Jansenist-friendly members of the sovereign court, there were also those directly supportive of the cult of Francois de Paris at Saint Médard. One was Francois de Paris's own brother, who unlike Francois had followed his family's path into the law, but had come to hold his late brother in great esteem. Another was a magistrate named Montgeron, 
who had visited Francois de Paris' tomb at St. Médard and become a believer after lapsing into a lengthy trance there. These figures helped to rally the Parliament of Paris, not only to the cause of the Jansenists, but to the aid of the cults at St. Médard as well, which they did by asserting the court's right to hear appeals on disputed ecclesiastical cases, such as the suspension of Jansenist priests and the findings of investigations into miracles, should an appeal be made. Thus, when the Archbishop of Paris, Vintimil, issued a decree forbidding the observances at St. Médard and Cardinal Fleury arranged for police to be stationed around the cemetery, the sovereign court took up the cause of the cult in earnest. Their power was a check to episcopal power, they argued, and therefore a bulwark to protect royal authority from the growing power of the Gallican Church. The king, however, whose chief minister, Cardinal Fleury, oversaw ecclesiastical matters, saw it more as a challenge to his own power. Add to this further pressure from Rome, where Pope Clement XII had expressed dissatisfaction with the king's inability to crush this schismatic cult, ordered a certain biography of Francois de Paris to be burned in the streets, and declared all the miracles attributed to him false. King Louis XV chose to bend to pressure from the church rather than pressure from the court, and he wielded his royal prerogative to annul certain of Parliament's decisions on these matters. In protest, the Parliament of Paris went on strike, disrupting the administration of justice in the city for three months and turning the so-called affair of the bull, which had become tied to the affair of the miracles into the affair of the parliament. Meanwhile, the miracles at St. Medard had begun to be overshadowed by the strange convulsionism occurring at the cemetery. And Cardinal Fleury, perhaps thinking it best to act while the sovereign court was on strike, ordered the lieutenant of police in Paris one Monsieur Herault to investigate. Herault had already undertaken an investigation of the miraculous cures for Fleury, finding most of them to have been only a temporary remission of symptoms followed by a relapse and declaring others to be outright Jansenist frauds. Embarking on a similar mission to debunk this new development in the miracles, he started by arresting several of the growing group of people who were experiencing convulsions at St. Medard, those who had come to be called convulsionaires, and locking them up at the Bastille. There, Harrow interrogated them in long, grueling sessions and had them examined by respected physicians over the course of two weeks. Among those examined were one Pierre Martin Gontier, who under duress confessed that he consciously made himself have these convulsions and demonstrated them on command, making his limbs stiff and then shaking them and contorting himself into a variety of postures. Gantier, upon his release, recanted this confession, but others Herot likewise grilled intensely and had examined by doctors made similar admissions. They always denied any fraudulent intent, though. 
claiming instead a desire to fit in among the others experiencing such convulsions. Then again, some refused, even after numerous interrogations, to admit that their convulsions were anything but genuine and divinely inspired. These he left out of his report. Armed with the results of his investigation, Cardinal Fleury succeeded in getting the king to declare the convulsions a threat to public order and issue an ordinance shutting down the cemetery at St. Medard once and for all. Early one morning in January 1732, armed guards marched through the streets of the Paris suburb of St. Marceau, posting copies of the ordinance high enough that it would be difficult to tear them down stationing guards on horseback at the church and cemetery, and locking the gates of St. Medard. Thereafter, Herot's police force arrested any convulsionaires who publicly displayed their spasms and contortions. By this time, the Parliament had come to an understanding with the king and convened once again but they were not about to stand by and watch what they viewed as a gross abuse of ecclesiastical authority. Especially outraged at the closing of the cemetery was Jérôme-Nicolas Paris, François de Paris's brother, who called the archbishop's denunciations of his brother's biography calumny, and who insisted that the police and church officials either had already or soon would desecrate his brother's grave by exhuming him. Eventually, though, when these rumors were proven untrue by an inspection of the tomb, the Parliament's opposition to the closing of the cemetery faded, as it seemed there was little they could do about it. However, if the goal of the Cardinal and Archbishop had been to crush the cult of François de Paris and the convulsionnaires entirely, they soon realized that they had failed to accomplish it. Unable to perform their observances and experience their convulsions in the cemetery or in public, the cult of François de Paris moved underground, meeting in whatever chapels would host them or in private residences. To avoid arrest, they were forced to become something of a secret society, addressing each other using code names, gaining entrance to their secret sessions with passwords. At these sessions, which often lacked any kind of clergy to lead them, a spirit of egalitarianism developed, with lay people delivering extemporaneous sermons to the rich and poor alike, among men and women, none of whom held any position of power over any other. As before, they carried relics of François de Paris and dirt from his grave at St. Medard, in an effort to bring the presence of their unofficial saint into their sessions and also, as before, through appeals for his intercession, miraculous cures were reported, often accompanied by convulsions. Indeed, it was only the ability to experience convulsions that seems to have afforded any status among the group. This convulsionism became more and more the focal point of these sessions, developing stranger, even supernatural qualities that drew even disbelievers to seek out these secret sessions as entertainment and to judge for themselves whether to believe the strange, seemingly paranormal events occurring there. In this way, 
The convulsionaires were forerunners of the spiritualists of the 19th century. In fact, the French word used for a convulsionaire session was séance. Now for a brief intermission. What really happened on the unsinkable Titanic? What made the 1904 St. Louis Marathon the strangest event in Olympic history? Whatever became of missing boy Bobby Dunbar? And who was the child who returned in his place? If these questions interest you, check out the History Uncovered podcast, brought to you by the digital publisher of All That's Interesting. History Uncovered explores the strange and obscure parts of history that you definitely didn't learn about in school. Hosted by the writers and editors of All That's Interesting, the show covers a wide variety of topics, ranging from the forgotten media spectacle of cave explorer Floyd Collins' death, to the disappearance and possible cannibalization of Michael Rockefeller, to the true story that inspired The Exorcist. With more than 100 episodes, you're bound to find that they've covered a topic that's especially interesting to you. And each month, they produce a special History Happy Hour episode, examining recent news in the fields of world history and archaeology, and commemorating important historical anniversaries. Come explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past by listening to History Uncovered, wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, back to the show. As the seances of the convulsionaires gradually changed in character, the convulsions became more important in themselves, not as a medium through which miracles were performed, but as a kind of divine communication to the sect. More and more, those experiencing the convulsions appeared to or claimed to experience great pain from them and then to indicate through gestures that they required some physical relief from others present in the form of some kind of bodily contact. This could be seen as an evolution from the earliest convulsions of Becharand, who asked that dirt from Francois de Paris' grave be rubbed on parts of his body. But among the convulsionaires, this was taken to extremes. It was declared that they required injury to be done to them in order to achieve this sacre or relief. 
So convulsionaires, many of them young women contorting themselves into indiscreet and even lewd positions, would be struck violently upon their bodies and appeared to gain physical pleasure from it. These blows eventually became known as petits secours, or small relief. For soon, they graduated to grand secours, or even secours moutriers, murderous relief. These convulsing women would be mercilessly beaten with blunt weapons, trampled upon, stuck with pens, and even stabbed with knives and swords. At the utmost extreme, it became rather common for convulsionaires to be actually crucified before astonished audiences at their seances. And what's more astonishing, it was said that not only did they derive relief or even ecstasy from these acts of violence, but they were said to have come through them unscathed, unbloodied, and without a bruise or any other mark. It was said that while convulsing, their bodies became invulnerable to harm, their skin impenetrable to blades. Understandably, the evolution of the cult of François de Paris to this bizarre convulsionism was decried, not only by Jesuits and constitutionaires, but by many Jansenists as well, as a kind of fanaticism, or even as showing the influence of the devil. First, these seances had a definite element of eroticism, with the contorting young females moaning in pleasure upon being slapped and struck. But the crucifixions made it even harder to justify, and sometimes, during seances, convulsionaires would feel compelled to commit blasphemies, like trampling on the Bible. However, many Jansenists were not ready to give up on the convulsionaires, arguing that these acts represented a kind of tableau vivant, or living picture, that just needed interpretation to understand its symbolism. In this way, the crucifixions were said to be reenactments of Christ's sacrifice, or metaphorically, it asserted that the painful convulsions represented the evil and the corruption in the church, specifically related to the papal bull Unigenitus, of course, and the secours, their violent relief, stood for the suffering that those faithful to true religion, the Jansenists, had to endure for the church to be redeemed. In this way, even trampling on the Bible during convulsions could easily be explained as a representation of constitutionaire apostasy or Jesuit heresy, and indecent exposure of female convulsionaires could signify the licentiousness of the church. Still other Jansenists, unable to accept all that went on at these seances, argued that some discernment was required, and that, oddly, some of the acts of convulsionaires were of divine origin, while others were not, and it was up to leveler heads to distinguish which were which. So, 
What exactly is a modern, rational mind to think of the convulsionaires? Really, any view we might take of them was already entertained by some Enlightenment thinker of the day. What they may have called quote-unquote hysteria, we would otherwise consider a mass delusion or a mania. Encouraged by the power of suggestion and the desire to be part of a crowd and a shared experience. There is also the idea that some of these people suffered from genuine convulsions because of epilepsy, or even that many of them did. It is conceivable that as experiencing convulsions became more and more associated with miracles and the divine, and as those who experienced them were afforded some measure of respect in these circles, that people with epilepsy were drawn to these groups or even recruited for their quote-unquote gift. As for their supposed invulnerability, this may have been a kind of parlor trick. The Grand Secours were administered by other members of the cult, so-called Secourists, who may have been careful not to hurt the convulsionaires when they struck them and not to break the skin when they thrust the points of blades against them. It may have been more of a show after all, like televised wrestling, or more similar like the seances of 19th century spiritualists. Other supernatural claims that were made about the convulsionaires, such as that they exhibited clairvoyance or spoke in tongues, or delivered elaborate sermons beyond their intellectual capability, could be as easily explained as many spiritualist tricks. We're all well aware of the vague pronouncements that mediums and psychics use to fool people into thinking they have some preternatural knowledge. And glossolalia, or spontaneously speaking in an unknown tongue, by its very nature cannot be proven or disproven as genuine. As for the sermons, there were conflicting reports about this coming out of convulsionaire seances. Some said they delivered elaborate sermons, while others described them as the rote repetition of statements obviously memorized beforehand. Likewise, reports from the seances contradict claims about convulsionaire invulnerability. For every description of their being immune to harm, there are others describing young convulsionaire women covered in blood and crawling on the floor as if in a trance. In the end, a sensible mind must dismiss the claims of supernatural acts as exaggerations amplified by Jansenist propagandists. Among those Jansenists bent on legitimizing the convulsionaires in order not to lose the cult of François de Paris as their principal claim to legitimacy and doctrinal truth in the schism, there were some who tended toward millenarianism, the end-times philosophy that the current state of things would soon pass away, ushering in a thousand-year golden age for the church. From this view, the convulsionism in the cult of François de Paris was but the last sputtering before rebirth, an apocalyptic sign of revolutionary change to come. As with most millenarian thought, this meant the return of the prophet Elijah, who departed from our world in a whirlwind and a chariot of fire, and was prophesied to return 
as a harbinger of the Messiah. Now in Christianity, some see John the Baptist as Elijah returned, though John denied it, and others look to Christ's transfiguration when Elijah appeared in the sky with Moses like a force ghost out of Star Wars and say that was Elijah's return. Millenarians, however, believe Elijah will return at the beginning of the end to herald the second coming of Christ. Among millenarian Jansenist apologists of the convulsionaires, it was claimed that surely Elijah would appear from among these pious vessels of God's miraculous work. In fact, an anonymous convulsionaire author took it even further than this in a document called The Mysterious Calendar for the Year 1733, exactly calculated on the Apocalypse of John the Evangelist and on the Prophecy of Isaiah which saw in the book of Revelations references to the persecution of Jansenists by the Gallican Church. This work asserted that Louis XV was actually the Antichrist himself, for his name in Latin, Ludovicus, when translated into Roman numerals, added up to the number of the beast, 666, and through a couple similarly dubious proofs, settled on 1733 as the beginning of the end of the world. From this milieu, unsurprisingly, there emerged more than one figure willing to make claims that they were prophets of the end times. One was a convulsionaire whose code name, or nom de convulsion, was Augustine. Frere Augustine, or Brother Augustine, declared himself to be the forerunner of the returned prophet Elijah. And he and his followers were said to consider themselves beyond good and evil, engaging in all kinds of blasphemous and licentious activities at their seances. Though whether this is accurate or just the propaganda of constitutionaires is hard to discern. Then there was Pierre Vailant, a mild-mannered anti-constitutionaire abbot and participant in convulsionaire seances who actually declared himself to be Elijah returned on a mission to convert the Jews. But Augustine did not confirm Vailant as the Elijah he had foretold. So the movement just became more and more splintered. In the end, this is a story of schism upon schism, with one sect rising only to have another sect born from its midst, the Jansenists, the anti-constitutionaires, the cult of Francois de Paris, the convulsionaires, the millenarians, the so-called Augustinists and Violentists, and these are just to name a few. I've actually simplified matters in this series, choosing not to define certain groups or movements like the appellants, the figurists, and the discernants, just to try to make it more accessible. As this became more and more complicated, each group came to represent or contain some element that its predecessor could not stomach. So the Jansenists turned on the cult of Francois de Paris when the convulsionism took over, and many of the followers of Francois de Paris 
who retained some sense of propriety and decorum, turned on the fanaticism and excesses of the convulsionaires when they evolved to include the Secours. And the convulsionaires, many of whom still stuck to their conservative Jansenist theology, rejected the Augustinists and Violentists for their blasphemy and heresy. In the end, the outrageous doctrines of these sects actually did much to heal the division between the sovereign court, the Gallican church, and the king. For none could stand behind a sect that called the king of France the Antichrist. So eventually, the Parliament of Paris abandoned the convulsionaires as a cause celebre and worked with Cardinal Fleury to indict Frere Augustin and the worst of the Augustinist fanatics. With the Parliament no longer countering their every move, ecclesiastical authorities moved to erase this modern age of miracles by officially denying all the cures attributed to Francois de Paris, even the early ones that the Archbishop before Ventimille had previously confirmed to be genuine. A final story should serve to illustrate how entirely the power of the cult of Francois de Paris and its convulsionaires had waned. In 1737, after years of working on it in exile, the parliamentarian Montgeron, whose conversion to convulsionism I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, completed a huge book compiling all the evidence in favor of the miracles attributed to Francois de Paris, called The Truth of the Miracles Operated at the Intercession of Monsieur Paris. Despite having previously been exiled, he dressed up in his finest clothes and strolled into the palace at Versailles, where he handed Louis XV his volume and urged him to read it. In response, King Louis had him tossed in prison for the rest of his life and ordered all copies of the book to be publicly burned. Now, this is not to say that the convulsionism of the followers of Francois de Paris disappeared overnight. Their seances and sect persisted in ever-dwindling numbers even long after Archbishop Ventimille and Cardinal Fleury and King Louis XV were gone. And it is completely reasonable to consider this entire affair as having made a definite contribution to not only the eventual French Revolution, but also to the emergence of Enlightenment thought and the modern world. While for the most part the cult at St. Medard never expressed any revolutionary sentiment, the ecclesiastical and political struggles they exacerbated certainly seemed to have weakened royal authority over the parliament. And likewise, parliamentary resistance to ecclesiastical authority created concrete rifts in the marriage of church and state. Additionally, the fact that the church and the sovereign court and the power of the throne all were forced to struggle with a group of pious commoners and that even despite the exercise of power to destroy them, they persisted in secret, creating their own egalitarian religious organizations, speaks to the tendency in France at the time toward democratic ideals. Furthermore, and ironically, though this was a modern age of miracles, in the long run it had the counterintuitive effect 
of reducing the importance of miracles in the church. The lengths that the church went to to explain away the purported miracles or to suggest they represented something diabolical resulted in skepticism being the standard reaction to such claims. More than this, the fanaticism that appeared during this affair encouraged the philosophes of the French High Enlightenment in their attacks on religion and claims of the supernatural, helping to usher in the modern age of rationalism and materialism. Enlightenment philosopher David Hume pointed out this irony best when he suggested that the miracles at St. Medard were better attested to than those of Jesus Christ himself. And so, in working so hard to undermine and disprove those miracles, the church had unwittingly provided skeptics with the arguments needed to refute even the wonders performed by Jesus. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. Special thanks go out to my partner patrons, Joe, Jacob, Robert, Diane, and Marina. Thanks for following me underground during these dangerous times. Some music on this episode was provided by Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com and contact him to get compositions for your own projects. Additional music from Kai Engel licensed under an International Creative Commons Attribution License. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. Be sure you visit patreon.com slash historical blindness and pledge to get ad-free episodes and exclusive content. On the website historicalblindness.com, you can find the blog posts with transcripts of the episodes and bibliographies for further reading. Follow the show on social media and give it a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, as a number of one-star reviews there by people insulting me and my personal views have dragged down my overall rating a bit. Until next time, remember, as weird and outrageous as the world seems to be getting these days, it will always tend to get even stranger as extremism breeds even wilder fanaticism. Don't expect that it will just go away on its own. And don't be surprised if it breeds violent convulsions in our own society. 